You're listening to a fully unlocked episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults. To hear another episode with Juana Castanera on her experiences in SGI, please go to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, Episode 5, Soka Gakai International. Wherever we are, none of us can exist in isolation. Following our dreams, we step forward. We create our own happiness. Through helping others. Treasuring each person. We build a world of heart-to-heart connections. Treasure the connection. SGI members help build a peaceful world. You might not recognize the name Soka Gakkai International, but you definitely would recognize its chant, Nom Yoho Renge Kyo. It is a sect that originally came to America via Japanese immigrants after the war. The group claims to practice its own form of Buddhism, but its use of a scroll and a chant to chant for material goods and consideration puts it at odds with many Buddhist sects. With me today to discuss her time at the Soka Gakkai International is Juana Castanera. Welcome, Juana. Juana, what can you tell us about the history of Soka Gakkai International? There were three presidents, and right now there is a third president, but he hasn't been seen in about 10 years. So I'm assuming that he's not alive anymore because he's not, he used to participate in a lot of meetings, et cetera. So um, the first president was Makiguchi and he was an educator. The second one was Jose Toda, who was also an educator, a young man who was taken under the wing of Makiguchi. And then the third one is this, Daisaku Ikeda gentleman, who's now probably at between 95, 98, somewhere around there. I firmly believe that he's not living anymore. It started out, Makiguchi started out as a, an educator and 
after World War II doing education by correspondence for the for the Japanese, right? So so that you know because there were no schools, etc. And that's how he started it. And then uh, I guess he got introduced to uh, the sect Nichiren Shoshu, which is a, a Buddhist sect in Japan, and he started practicing. He found that that was a, a great way to lead. You know, the Japanese after the war were so defeated, a, a way of helping them. He became instrumental with the priesthood in in propagation. So this is the, the history that's known, that's put out by the organization. There is a different history. In Japan, it's like either love and hate. There are the people that are in the organization or that are practicing SGI Buddhists, you know, and they're, they're brainwashed. And then there's everybody else that thinks that it's a, that knows that the SGI is a cult. There's a lot of, of slandering articles in the newspaper about the organization, about Daisaku Ikeda. And so we, as American practitioners, we were told that, oh, it's just because they're jealous of Daisaku Ikeda's power and influence. You know, they always paint the story that, you know, people don't understand that we're working for world peace. Do you think that the Japanese reaction to the group was probably because of the experience that they've had with groups like Om Shinrikyo? During the years that I was in the SGI, that's all I lived. I lived and breathed. So I didn't really familiarize myself much with the other cults or other religious organizations that especially, you know, not only Japan, but also in China and other Asian countries. The other aspect is that the uh, Sokogakai, the Japanese organization, they developed a branch, a political organization called the Komeito. And that is a branch of the Sokogakai organization. And they appointed leaders from within the organization to become like politicians. And they ran for office. So... Sokogakai started infiltrating Japanese politics. And that started maybe the 80s. And so I'm sure the Japanese people figured out the members are intense and proselytizing. And there's there's accounts of uh, physical intimidation in society trying to convert people and now there's they they saw that now there's an infiltration into politics and so i think that was um and a lot of irregularities in how you know the members were encouraged to vote for the komeito member that was running it, it became really obvious that there was a that the Sokogaka was trying to uh, create a lot of influence in Japanese society. What are the major beliefs of Sokogakai International? Sokogakai is based on Nichiren Shoshu Buddhism, that is based on Mahayana Buddhism that comes from India. It comes from 
uh, Siddhartha and, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha attaining enlightenment under the, the Bodhi tree. And it's based on the Lotus Sutra. So one of the teachings uh, of Shakyamuni Buddha, the Lotus Sutra, which was then brought to Japan, right? So it traveled from India to China and then into Japan. And so um, there was the recitation of two chapters of the Lotus Sutra. And then Nichiren Daishonin in 13th century Japan inscribed. So he said that he attained enlightenment. So he inscribed his enlightenment onto a wooden block, like a large sized, I don't know, six foot, I, I don't know the exact dimensions, but a large piece of wood. So he inscribed in Japanese characters that became what they call the Gohonzon, which is this in, in Japanese, it's the supreme object of worship. So Nichiren Daishonin is, they say, uh, within the SGI, that is, he is the true Buddha. So there's the original Buddha, which is Shakyamuni. And then Nichiren Daishonin comes along in 13th century Japan, and he calls himself the true Buddha. And he inscribes this block of wood with his life condition. That is the object that people chant to. In 13th century Japan, the members had like a wooden representation, a smaller thing that they could have in their homes. Today, that that Gohonzon or all those characters that originally were on a piece of wood are now inscribed onto a piece of paper. And it's what is, it's a scroll. So in India, it's called a mandala. And we call it a scroll. And the scroll is hung inside of an altar or like a little box that, you know, they call the butsudan. So it's the gohonzon inside of a butsudan. And that is the, the, the gohonzon is the supreme object of worship. And by chanting, reciting two chapters of the Lotus Sutra and then chanting Nam-myoho Renge-kyo. And Myoho Renge-kyo is the, the beginning of the Lotus Sutra in Japanese, right? So they, they converted the, the Hindu words of Shakyamuni into Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. Nam means devotion to, and Myoho Renge Kyo means the law of cause and effect. A practitioner chants Nam Myoho Renge Kyo to this scroll inside of a box and on an altar, and, and there's candles and incense. And there's an offering of fruit and of green greens. Um, and they all represent something. And so by chanting to this piece of paper, basically, you're fusing your life with the life of Nichiren Daishonin, the true Buddha, so that you can elevate your life condition to his state and attain enlightenment. Can you tell us about the scroll? I've heard that there are very specific instructions for how to care for it and where it has to go in your home. You're encouraged to find the best location in your house, like the most honorable or the, you know, the prime location. And it's usually in your living room, away from doors and windows and away from any heating 
you know, central heating or et cetera. So it, it deserves the highest or, or the best location in your home. And usually it's the leaders that come and enshrine the gohonzon. You're not supposed to touch it and you're not supposed to move it. You're never supposed to point your feet at it. So when you chant, and for those people that can kneel, you're encouraged to kneel. And the gohonzon should always be like above, placed a couple of feet above your, your eyes. So if you're sitting and your eyes are straight forward, the gohonzon should be elevated a little bit as a sign of respect. Also cleaning the altar, maintaining it, making sure that you have fresh fruit or whatever offerings. You know, the Japanese have different offerings. They have their mochi, uh, their rice balls, etc., depending on the holidays. And the more you maintain and, and the more respect that you give to the gohonzon and your altar, then that reflects in the kind of life you're going to have. So when in your practice do you get a gohonzon? When I joined in 1982, it was pretty easy to get a gohonzon. The organization had a lot of campaigns to convert people. So there weren't a lot of rules. The sooner you got a gohonzon, the better. And it seemed like it really didn't matter. And so a lot of people used to receive the gohonzon. I mean, we had meet in those days, we had meetings every night, Monday through Sunday. There were meetings bringing guests and encouraging the guests to receive a gohonzon. So these people would get the gohonzon after a meeting or two. And then we most of the time we'd never see them again. The practice in those days was very, very rigid doing the recitation of what we called of what they call gongyo and it was five repetitions of those two chapters and then chanting as much as you could so sometimes you know when i first started i used to get up at 5 in the morning to to chant for an hour an hour and a half and then again in the evening to do again the recitation and then to chant as much and so obviously the more you chanted the better your life was going to become so it was, it required a tremendous amount of discipline and most people couldn't do that. So you'd see, you'd see people maybe come for a month and then you'd never see them again. We call introducing people to Gohonzon or they call it uh, shakabuku. So we used a lot of Japanese words in those days. And then around the nineties, end of the nineties, we, uh, the organization was trying to uh, let go of all those Japanese terms and make it more of an American organization. So nowadays, I don't know exactly, I think they just say to introduce people to Buddhism. The 80s and kind of into the 90s where it was crazy, a lot of people receiving the scroll, the gohonzon, we'd never see them again. And then we'd see the scrolls in uh, like secondhand shops or we'd see them everywhere. And then in the 90s, then it was all of a sudden there were all these rules. You had to come to meetings consistently for a month, and it made they made it more difficult to receive the gohonzon. They wanted people to understand what they were doing and to um, be more disciplined and to really make a commitment. So it it went in waves. There were two months in the year where we would do these campaigns. 
in the 80s, we would go out into the streets and talk to strangers. I, I remember doing that in San Francisco, and I absolutely hated it. And I would do everything I could to avoid going and talking to strangers or ringing, ringing people's doorbell. So I was really never a fan of pushing people. There was a lot of, of, it was kind of an aggressive practice to convincing people to start practicing and receiving the gohonjon. And that really never sat well with me. I, I didn't like that coercive um, tactic. What does a week in the life of an SGI adherent look like? You're going to meetings. I'm assuming you're chanting at home. You had your personal practice, which was getting up in the morning and doing your, you know, doing reciting gongyo and doing chanting daimoku, which is what the repetition of nam myoho renge kyo is called, and then doing that in the evening. And then uh, in those days, we had meetings all the time. So we had regular meetings and they were neighborhood meetings. So uh, someone in, in the neighborhood would open their house up and it, it was a district meeting. So there would be maybe 30 people who all lived kind of in, in that neighborhood. We'd get together, we would chant and we'd do gongyo and then there would be a presentation. I should mention that the organization is split up into four divisions. The young women, the young men, the women's division, and the men's division. And every division has activities of their own. So when I joined, I was 23. I was not married. And I joined the youth division. So I was a young women's division member. So we had the weekly meetings that we would go after work. They were usually started around 7 o'clock. And then we would have youth division activities that would take place on Sundays. So we would go to, at the time it was Daly City, we had a community center. Uh, we'd go uh, sometimes eight o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock in the morning, and we would go, go do certain you know, activities for young women. What they called in Japanese, okotekitai, which was like a band for young women. And then we had a chorus, and then we had another group that was a Japanese word again, a byakuren group, which was basically supporting behind the scenes. We had a lot of large gatherings. The first Sunday of every month, we would have what we would call a Kozen Rufu Day, World Peace Day, and everybody would come together. The young men had their activities. They had a brass band. They had a gymnastics group. They had young men that would help in the parking lot, directing traffic. And I should mention that when... I joined because my brother joined. So my brother joined six months before I did. And he was completely enthused about the whole thing. And so I arrived to San Francisco from Boston and I went to my first meeting that first night. And I, for some reason, I felt uh, an affinity towards the practice. It felt as if I had done it before. I was very comfortable. And so I joined. And so him and I used to do all these activities together. He was in the young men's division and I was in the young women's division. And we would go to practice every Sunday. Uh, I know that nowadays uh, the youth do not practice so intensely. I think it's one Sunday a month that they do nowadays. Uh, things have changed dramatically because 
people can't commit to that level of activity. When did you go from being a novice to knowing that you wanted to be all in? The goal is is to attain enlightenment, but along the way, uh, you're chanting for certain things that you need in your life, and they term these things benefits. So, you know, you chant for a job, or you chant for a boyfriend, or you chant for whatever, and in the background, you're also chanting for world peace. So I started going to these meetings with my brother. I had just moved here. I had no friends. The only person I knew in San Francisco was my brother. So I didn't have anything to do and I needed a job. So the first thing that I started chanting for was for a job. And I had not had a job yet. So I get to San Francisco and it's like, I need a job. I have $200 and I'm sleeping on the couch in my brother's apartment. So I started chanting for a job. And I think within two weeks, I got a job at a bank. And to me, that was like, oh, my gosh. This is amazing. It's because I'm chanting. I liked the people within the organization. They they were great. And there was a lot of camaraderie. And at that time, I was feeling rather lonely. It felt really embracing, you know, the organization, the people. So right about that first month, I was like, I'm doing this. So how do you go from just being a person who observes to moving up in the organization at Soka Gakkai International? You start out as a member. You, they start grooming you uh, for leadership. So first, you're a group leader and you're responsible for, a, you know, four or five people. And then from a group leader, you know, you can be appointed a district leader. And from a district leader... So a district is maybe 20, 30 people. And then the next position is a chapter leader. And there are leadership positions in all different divisions. So as a young woman, you you have all these positions. And as a men's and women's division, and basically people in the men's and women's division, it's because they're married and they have kids, right? So that's kind of the differentiation. Once you get married, you graduate into the next division. And so... There's grooming into these leadership positions. The purpose is to that being in leadership and taking care of other people or developing the bodhisattva spirit helps you to erase your karma or to eradicate your karma. I worked my way up from a group leader to a district leader to a chapter leader, and then it was a headquarters leader, and then it was an area leader. By the time I was, I think, 34. I was taking care of a pretty large area. So it was like San Francisco, uh, and then it, was, it would go all the way up north to Sonoma County and a little bit to the Central Valley, Merced, and a couple other cities. So I would do activities during the week in San Francisco, and then on the weekends I would drive to outer locations two hours away or so to uh, encourage uh, and lead other meetings with the young women. You're not really aspiring to become a leader because the more leadership, although there there were people that wanted to be leaders, but that was kind of frowned upon. But there is the whole grooming uh, to, to get you to be responsible and taking care of other people. SGI has some celebrity adherents. So how aware were you made of them 
while you were there? The first celebrity was uh, Tina Turner. In, in 82, the organization was called Nichiren Shoshu of America, NSA. And they went to participate in this huge uh, parade in Washington, D.C. And Tina Turner was you know, the star. She chanted to be able to get out of the marriage that she was in. And so it was in the movie that she made, you know, what's love got to do with it. Orlando Bloom is another star. Uh, Off the top of my head, those are the two that I can think of. But we were always being made aware of what actor or singer uh, was chanting and obviously to influence the, the, the membership. There was a celebration of the signing of the UN Charter in the 90s, and so the SGI participated in that. And I, I went and I, I was kind of behind the scenes, and uh, you know, with all the dignitaries, etc., you know, politicians and hobnobbing. But you know, the SGI hasn't really made any headway as far as public awareness of the organization. What is the joining ceremony? When I joined, we did not have priests here from Japan. It happened later on, I I guess like 87, 88, that they built a temple near Oakland. And then we had priests that came from Japan and they would do the Gohonzon acceptance ceremony. It's when you accept a a Gohonzon and it's never really yours. It's on loan to you from the organization. And you're you're caring for this gohonzon or for this scroll uh, for your family as long as you're as long as you want to, right? So uh, you have to fill out an application. So you have a sponsor, you have the person that introduced you to the practice, and then you fill out your information. The spot the sponsor's information's on the application. You have someone that uh, a leader that kind of vouches that they've seen you at meetings, that they know who you are, etc. And so you fill out the form. And at the time, I don't remember if there was a donation to be given. But then afterwards, it was I think fifteen dollars or twenty dollars to be able to receive the gohonzon. So you you filled out the application. You had the uh, appropriate signatures that had to be on it, and then you went to the temple, and you received the gohonzon uh, after you gave the donation and the application. And yeah, it was a big deal. It was like uh, your second birthday. So when you were at a very high level, how many hours a week were you spending at the organization or doing organizational activities? It basically consumed my entire life. So I had a job, you know, eight to five, and then I would go home. I'd go to the meeting at seven o'clock and the meeting would go from seven to eight thirty. And then there usually was another meeting after the meeting to meet with the leaders or discussion. And so many times it would be getting home at 9 30, 10 o'clock. Uh, I'd be the first one out the door <laughs> because I like my sleep. And then usually, uh, you know, as I started going up in rank, I was always making phone calls. In those days, we didn't have cell phones. So you'd have to be near a phone at home, making phone calls, arranging things. I usually did activities Saturdays and Sundays. So it, it, it consumed a lot of my life. How do they make money? 
when we have those world peace gongyo meetings that happen the first of the month, the first Sunday of the month, there's always the possibility to give a donation. So there's a table with usually it's the women that receive the money and then you get a receipt because it's tax deductible. So there's always opportunities. And then there's one month out of the year where the members make a vow to give so much money. It's it's not a competition, but people really strive to be able to reach their goal of whatever it is. So that happens. And then when you become a little bit more assiduous, then there is a monthly donation that you can give that's called Zaimu, another Japanese word. When I started, I started giving like $20 a month. They, they had these special envelopes that were printed and they were, you know, they had the, the U, U.S. Postal Service barcode thing on them. So all you had to do was put in your check and stick it in a mailbox and it would make it to, to I think it went to L.A. And so I started donating. And I think by the time I think the highest I got was to one hundred and twenty dollars a month that I was donating and that was just regular monthly donations and then added the donations I would do uh, on Sundays or during that uh, campaign month. I think it was August when they we would campaign to see how much money we could give. And, you know, everybody would have their own um, dollar amount, you know, that they would strive to do and. Do you want to, I I sat down sometime afterwards to, and I went through all my tax returns to, to add up like how much money had I actually given? And it was above $50,000. When did you start having doubts about the organization? So my brother and I were, we practiced together. We, we went to Japan three times. We convinced my mother to start practicing, and my mother practiced for two years. We tried to convince my dad, and he flat out told me that we were in a cult and that we were fanatics. <laughs> and anyway, so it was around um, 1999. I was married at the time. I just started getting this gut feeling that there was something wrong in my life. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. What I started noticing is that my life was getting smaller and smaller. My life was consumed by doing activities. By that time, I was a women's division district leader. I was having meetings at my house very often. And my whole life revolved around the practice, members. You know, I had a very specific vocabulary. And I started noticing that I was really uncomfortable being around people who didn't practice. And whenever uh, coworkers or friends who didn't practice would invite me to do things, I would get really uncomfortable and I would avoid going out with them because I didn't know how to relate to people that weren't in the practice. And I started noticing all these things and thinking like, this doesn't really make sense. If I'm really trying to do something for world peace, but all I do is hang out with people that chant, there's something wrong with this picture. So I started noticing all these things. And, and I, and and at that time I had no idea. I just knew that 
something was not right. So that was 1999. And it was, I moved to, to Florida with my husband at the time. And I divorced. And at the, I had a leadership position in Florida. I had somewhat of a breakdown, like an emotional breakdown. Uh, I wasn't expecting to get divorced. And so it was really hard on me. And I was by myself. And so I reached out to the organization, hoping for some emotional support. And I didn't get any. I told my senior in faith that I, I needed some time to chill and that I didn't want any responsibility, that I needed to heal and I needed some time to recover from what it just, you know, for, from, I guess, my divorce and the death of my father and other things that had happened. And I basically got the cold shoulder. That's when it was like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with these people? So as long as I'm doing, doing, doing and running around, they're happy with me. But as soon as I need some support or I need to take some time, there's no acknowledgement for that. And I must say, at the time, I was also working at the Miami Community Center uh, on a part-time basis. So the way I was treated, you know, I, I'd already had these feelings kind of percolating inside me. But when that happened, it was like, wow. So I stopped doing activities and I just decided, you know what? I need to take care of myself. And they don't, you know, if they don't understand how I'm suffering, then that's their problem. And I'm just going to take care of myself. So I just stopped doing the activities and kind of avoided them and nobody came to check up on me. Nobody, you know, these women that I had been practicing with and that I thought were my friends, all of a sudden they weren't around. And that was a, that was a huge wake up call. I'm like, wow. Okay. In 2005, I, I decided to move back to California. I was, it was so difficult for me to really make a clean break. Uh, you know, there's a concept within the organization that if you stop practicing, that your life is just going to go to pot. You're just going to crumble. They call it going Titan. And I think subconsciously, I was really afraid that my life was just going to crumble. I found it really, really hard. So I was, I still was doing my, my own personal practice, but I had just decided I'm not going to be a leader anymore and I'll just go to meetings when I feel like it. And so, you know, I go to a meeting maybe once a month. Then I moved back to California. I went to work for them again at a part-time basis at the culture center here in San Francisco. And then I started seeing like what was going on behind the scenes in the office, et cetera. And then it was like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, it really doesn't correlate very well with this huge vision of world peace and, you know, treating people with respect and et cetera. And then it was about 2009 that I'm like, I'm done. But it, it took me 10 years. 
of going back and forth and no and you know that it was my fault and that I'm the one that um you know that I haven't changed enough karma and that I'm being negative so every time that someone either criticizes or has a difficult time with a leader or another member or they're struggling with the organization they just say you're being negative and that uh it's basically the the japanese term is sanshoshima like the devilish functions in your life are trying to stop you from moving forward in your life something that i read about is that to protect your karma you're not supposed to help one another and you're not supposed to lend money to one another is that true the first part about helping other helping someone no so the way members help each other or leaders help each other is by going and chanting with them you know listening to them giving guidance you know guidance and faith there are some people that don't want to help you know that have really clear boundaries and uh, you know my boundaries weren't all that clear and i think that's one of the reasons why i just burnt out it it it's case by case and i think it depends on like the area that you um that you practice and the group of people because i know that there are members that have helped members with cancer that have driven members to doctors appointments or to the hospital so that is not frowned upon but the whole concept of lending money and going into business with other members absolutely so that that is off limits so you don't go into business with another member you don't go to meetings to sell stuff or um you know to try and get members to buy stuff from you or etc so yes and i i remember uh when i was a leader in in florida newly appointed so i didn't know the members very well i went to a district meeting and after the meeting the woman who lived in the house she started selling like frozen fish and i was like what are you doing she goes oh you know i I'm selling this fish and after the meeting I'm like no 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 you can't do that. You can't take advantage of the members for your own personal profit. Talk to me about things that you witnessed while you were at the office that you felt were not in accordance with Buddhist beliefs. There is a a center in Florida called the Florida Nature and Culture Center. And it's a It's kind of a resort center where members from all over the country and even sometimes outside of the US come for 3-4 days um like a conference on a certain subject. So you'll have conferences for the women's division, you'll have conferences for the men's division or conferences for educators, etc. And it's a rather big piece of land. Uh, right next to the Everglades. And there's a swimming pool and it's it's a place where members can go to get rejuvenated. And then there's all the chanting involved, etc. And the Miami Community Center was inside of the Florida Nature and Culture Center. 
but it was a separate office and that's where I used to work. So I worked there for probably like a year and a half. So there was a gentleman that was in charge of the Florida Nature and Culture Center and he was a 40-year Japanese gentleman. And then there was a gentleman that was in charge of the Miami Community Center and of all of kind of the the entire of Florida, like and and a bit of Georgia, et cetera. And there was what I witnessed was a clash between the two gentlemen. And basically it was like a power struggle. One guy trying to uh, discredit the other and take away his uh, his power, I would say. And so, and using really silly tactics like uh, the Florida Nature and Culture Center had a cafeteria where all the members that would come would eat meals. And on Fridays, we would go and join them and have lunch there. And there were four of us. So it wasn't a big deal. And all of a sudden, we couldn't go and have lunch there. And little details like that. And, um, you know, the Japanese are very good at like being secretive about things. And they all these Japanese leaders would speak in Japanese. So I, I couldn't really understand what they were saying, but I could tell by, you know, their posture and their attitudes that, that they were trying to exclude one guy from what was going on. And so, you know, that was one example. I, it's, it's not a very good example. Um, uh, let's see in the, in the San Francisco culture center, uh, there were a lot of power struggles. There was one gentleman that was doing the job of four people and who really deserved to get some help, but they wouldn't hire anybody. So, uh, you know, they, they work people to death basically. Did you ever complain about being overworked? No, I never, I never did. I guess I had this attitude, kind of overzealous attitude. I wanted to do the best that I could do. And I would go above and beyond because um, I felt that I was doing something that was very noble. So I never complained. I, I mean, you know, I... But I, I would see how other people were being used. Um, yeah. What was the status of your brother in the organization after you left? It's 2009. My brother and I had been co-leaders. We had been leading a group for the Portuguese language uh, members. So there were quite a few Brazilian members that were living in San Francisco and we were, we were in charge. I I grew up in Brazil. I speak Portuguese and so did my brother, obviously. (laughs) So, um, so we, um, we were in charge of this, the Portuguese language group and we'd been in charge for a couple of years and we had these meetings, these monthly meetings, and then just supporting them however we could. 
And around 2009, um, I decided that I was going to stop practicing. I, we weren't living together, so I had my place. My brother had his. And I decided that I was not going to really tell anybody and that I wasn't really uh, I didn't want to influence anybody. It was my decision. And so I didn't want to go around people telling uh, telling people, oh, my gosh, you're crazy. You're in a cult. So I just said, this is my decision. I'm going to stop. And unbeknownst to me, my brother decided to do the same thing. He stopped practicing. And it was only, I think, about a year later, like 2010, I was at my brother's place and he asked me if I was still chanting. And I said, no. And he looked at me and I looked at him and I said, are you? And he goes, no. And we both started laughing. So we both had come to the same conclusion without actually talking about it. So in 2009, we we were still practicing. We decided we didn't want to be leaders anymore. And we went to the organization. We had three meetings, three different separate times to get rid of the leadership position. And the and for some reason they would not they would change the subject and we'd walk away from the meetings going like, oh my gosh, don't they get it? We don't want to do this anymore. So we finally had a final meeting and we just said, there's nothing to discuss. We're quitting. We don't want to be leaders anymore. And we got up and we left. And because it just seemed like you know, like we couldn't get rid of them. So we walked away. We weren't leaders anymore. And then on our own, we just decided to stop practicing. I um, I just had no desire to chant or to do gongyu anymore. It just became more and more painful. So I rolled up the gohonjon, the, the scroll. Uh, I sold the large uh, altar that I had. And I just put everything in a little box. And I started carrying that around. And then he quit on the, uh, at the same time. And then I moved out of San Francisco and I think it was around 2015. So I carried the scroll for quite a bit. And then around 2015, I decided uh, I needed to return the scroll because I basically come to the realization it was a cult and I didn't want to have anything to do with them and that I didn't need these objects anymore. And I had a huge library. I had like every book under the sun. I took the scroll. I went back to the center and I handed it back to them. And I'm like, I'm done. And then I got all the books and I threw them in the recycling bin. What was the reaction when you turned your gohonson in? They were stunned. So the office in most of these offices are manned with very little manpower, like two people. Right. And then everybody else is a volunteer. So when I went to the center, there were only two people in the office. I basically had grown up in the center. So everybody and their mother knew me. I walked in and I told them I'm here to return the gohon zone. They hadn't seen me in five or six years. And they were just stunned. Did you ever hear again from your friends within the organization after you left? No. 
nothing at all. You know, like I said, when I joined, I was 23. And then I spent day and night with many people within the organization. So I basically grew up in the organization. Many of my of the people who were my seniors in faith are recently are starting to pass away. So sometimes I hear through the grapevine or via Facebook that someone's passed away and there's going to be a memorial. I, I still like them. I mean, you know, they're not bad people. And so my brother and I, there, there was a gentleman who passed away a couple of years ago and my brother and I really liked him. And, he, you know, he had a heart of gold. And so we both decided to go to the culture center and attend the memorial. And we got a lot of stares. <laughs> People were very uncomfortable with us being there. And uh, it was very hard for them. And it obviously was hard for us too, because it was just uncomfortable. And so after that one memorial, I told my brother, I said, I'm, I'm not going back to any more. It doesn't matter who passes away. I'm done. What was life like for you after you got out? Basically, I was trying to figure out, like, what happened. I was mainly thinking about myself. Like, what did I do? How did I just lose myself? That, that was what I was trying to understand. Uh, you know, the fact that, that being part of the organization had enabled me to create this image of a leader. So I had lived this kind of fake life of being a leader and being in charge and giving people guidance and, you know, just uh, being a senior in faith and having so many people look up to me. And and all of a sudden, it's it's like I had been living a lie. That 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 really wasn't who I was. And so I started deconstructing that um, that because of my low self-esteem, I, I was a prime candidate for being recruited into all these leadership positions. And uh, so I was really ashamed of myself that I had um, just allowed myself to be completely sucked in to the organization and, you know, that I devoted so much time, you know, uh, and this goal of world peace, you know, I, I finally came to the realization that it was a lie. I had dedicated so much time and energy. I was really mad at myself. And so I remembered my dad saying that I was in a cult and just thinking like, oh, my gosh, he was right. Because if if, you know, nowadays, if I went out and I asked 20 people, random people, if they've ever heard of the SGI or Sokogake International, most people will tell you no. So in all those years that I spent feverishly proselytizing and and you know, dedicating myself in all those meetings and, and study groups and on and on and on. 
all that was in vain because the organization is basically unknown here in the U.S. We have, I mean, it, it hasn't even made a dent. So coming to the realization that all those efforts for world peace were basically wasted, I was, yeah, that was really hard for me to, to come to terms with. I was really mad at myself for being so foolish. What did you find was the most helpful in helping you process your emotions? Talking with my brother. Because we both had experienced the exact same thing. He had been a, a leader within the young men's division. We kind of grew, grew up in rank together. We did all the major activities. We used to have these huge gatherings. Like sometimes we'd go to L.A. or New York, you know, 30,000 people. And, and so we did a lot of large scale activities um, together. So, yeah, we would sit and we would talk about things. And uh, I also have a practice of journaling. So I would journal through all my emotions and all the um, the realizations that I would have about myself and about uh, what what is it that happened to me or or where I was at that I needed to be part of a group. So let me share with you something. I almost forgot about this. So when I was 13 years old, living in Brazil, um, I remember picking up a book that was on the sh on kind of the family library. And it was my sister's college book uh, written by Eric Fromm. And he'd written a book about freedom and the human being. And I remember reading that. I, I wasn't a big reader as a kid, so I didn't read very many books. But I remember reading that book. And in that book, he writes about how humans have a very difficult time with freedom, that they need to belong. And I'd, I'd read that. And as a teenager, I was pretty rebellious. And, you know, I, I was kind of, um, I always stuck out. I wasn't part of a clique. I kind of always did my own thing. And so after I, so I had this awareness already about how human beings have this, that it's very hard for them to, to cultivate their individuality and to be themselves and to be authentic that they'll fall into groups uh, to feel as if they belong. And it was only afterwards, you know, after, after I returned the Golans and all that, that I remembered about the book. And I remembered that I had read that and that I'd already had that awareness. And even having that awareness, I'd fallen into this need to belong and to feel as if I needed to be part of a group for, so that my life had purpose and meaning. So very, very strange. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier in 1982, when I joined, I was 23 and um, I was, I, you know, I, I was really suffering. Uh, 
I was lonely and I was not very happy with myself. So all of a sudden I'm going to be part of an organization that has as its gold world peace. And I, I'm, I guess I'm, I have utopian views or at that time, uh, so it, it fit. It was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. I'm going to be able to do something amazing with my life. And then come to realize that all I was doing was uh, spinning my wheels. What's the best part about being out? 2015, when I actually went and returned to Gohonzon, was actually, I guess, the end. And so it's it's been four years and it's actually healing from all that and uh, realizing, I, well, I'm in the process of realizing that I had a lot of shame and I'm healing around that and finally discovering who I am. And, and so um, it's it's been challenging but i i feel like i'm i'm starting to actually know who i am and not this persona that was created or that i created so um the freedom of discovery of who i actually am as opposed to being a follower so cultivating my own uh being my own leader so it, it it does take a lot of work and it takes a lot of determination. Um, but the pleasure is really creating, create or discovering my own authenticity. What do you want people to know about this group? Um, I can't. I'm sure we're we're gonna hand up, hang up, and then later on. I'm, oh my gosh, I forgot to tell her this. Uh, and can I do that if I think of something? Can I? Okay, because that's probably what's gonna happen. Is um, I think these past four years, what I've tried to do is kind of purge myself from all the. I think there's a lot of brainwashing and mind control within the organization. And part of it is all the chanting, the chanting. And, uh, yeah, I think because it's, it's not, it's, it's a verbal meditation, but it's basically chanting. And I think that the monotonous chanting and the prayers are what really plug you into kind of the mind control of the organization. And it's very powerful. And um, it's what, um, so in, you know, I practiced for a very long time and I've, I witnessed a lot of people kind of leave the organization, but not actually like they're out on the periphery. So they never actually say I'm done. I'm returning to the Honzon. They're, you know, they're always 
like, you know, they, they avoid the phone calls, et cetera, et cetera, but they can't make a clean cut. It's very, very difficult. So, um, and I've, I've witnessed so many people, uh, leave the organization in those kind of terms without actually being able to stand up for themselves and say, I'm done and actually cut the ties. And, and that takes uh, a tremendous amount of power. And what I realized is that you can't source your power from someone else. You, in order to really become a powerful human being, and I'm not saying that in terms of uh, being powerful over others, but in terms of being powerful in your own life and really uh, kind of developing your own potential, you have to source your own power from within. That when you are sourcing power through someone else, through a guru or a mentor, you're really like, you're a parasite. So there's a function of the organization parasites off of you, but then you also are a parasite of the organization because the organization is giving you the sense of power that you lack on your own. Do you follow any kind of religion now? In, in my family, we're three kids, right? So I'm the youngest and I have an older brother and then I have an older sister. And my older sister also joined a cult. So <laughs> the three of us. So she joined the Transcendental Meditation Cult. In 1975, I'm still in Brazil. I'm in high school. In the same month, she attends a Transcendental Meditation meeting and I attend one as well. And I, I became initiated and I received a mantra and I started meditating in Brazil. And she started doing the same thing. I meditated for about seven, seven, eight years. I think I was 13. The TM organization kept trying to recruit me, but nothing was free. Everything was like 500 bucks, 200 bucks. And I was 13 and I didn't have any money. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. I'm not paying you money to go to some meeting. So I just kept meditating. Unfortunately, my sister, she got recruited and she has basically dedicated her whole life to the TM movement. She's a teacher and she was part of a group called the Mother Divine. She worked in Panama for the TM movement. She worked in Argentina. She worked in Zambia. She worked in Brazil, and she's married to another meditator, another TMer. And there was a period where she tried to quit. I, I guess she couldn't do it, so she's back meditating, and she's now teaching TM again. So she's still, she's still in the grips of the of meditation. Juana, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you for listening to On Belief, a podcast about cults. I'm Karen Geyer. You can follow me at at K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R or follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter at OnBeliefPod. And you can contribute to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash K
Karen Geyer. You can also visit our website. It's just onbelief.com. Next week. Week on, week out, slowly people kind of who weren't really interested in the more new agey concepts that were being presented in the class wandered off or people who weren't really into the yoga wandered off. And the group, I think, we were the second year at the time. Uh, we whittled down to about 20 people, I think, who would regularly turn up. Um, four or five men, various ages from, you know, late 20s to kind of early 50s. And then uh, about you know, 15, 16 women who would come regularly. And, you know, we got, we got quite close. We were encouraged very quickly to kind of become very open about talking about everything from you know emotions to our sexual desires to you know what was bugging us that week kind of thing in the interest of you know cleansing ourselves or whatever it may have been any any given week based on the lesson that we were we were doing there was a lot of kind of pairing off and exploring each other emotionally and a little bit physically but not overly you know um kind of would do eye gazing meditation together and there'd be exercises where you'd kind of be trying to be in the moment so you'd kind of close your eyes and the other person might be stroking your arm or something you'd be paying attention to the sensation or something like that um, and then of course a lot of yoga tara yoga